Today, historians focus on the symptoms of Rome's fall, the consequences, the moral decay, the economic decline, the fall in public safety, the multiplying plagues from dysfunctional public services, the hollowed-out military that ultimately invited barbarian invasions. But we know these well. In fact, we're living through many of them. What's a lot more interesting is the why, because that's how you stop it. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we've got a great read today. Are we living through the fall of Rome? We have Peter St. Ange making it back to the show today, uh, which we had an interview with him, which I will have in the show notes. In fact, let me mark that down so I don't forget it right now. Um... Uh, article, interview, blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, yeah, so that was a really fun episode, actually. I really, really had a great time with uh, Peter. And I've read a couple of his articles on the show, but he just has an incredible kind of uh, a catalog of videos and explanations and breakdowns. He has like weekly things. Uh, one of my favorite things to just actually stop and watch on Twitter. Always has really great bite-sized analysis of kind of the stuff that's been going on and just spot on with the Austrian theory and the way to think about things, I think. So highly recommended. And uh, then there's this, everybody thinking about the Roman Empire meme going around, which is hilarious, but it's a perfect analogy. And I think there's very good reason why it's a popular meme right now is because for all intents and purposes, it's accurate. And I think uh, St. Ange makes a Really great case here. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. And just a heads up, uh, don't forget to subscribe to Stay Tuned. We have a uh, another really fun guys take coming probably in the next day or two. And an interview finally that we're actually having to redo. But it was so good that I cannot, I can't lose it. I can't lose it. We, we lost the audio um, or, or the video of like a huge section. I lost his thing. So it was just like me weirdly sitting there and making a comment every like five minutes <laughs> while he explained a bunch of things. So, um, and we lost a big enough section that we're just gonna have to redo the whole thing. But trust me, you are not gonna wanna miss this one. This one is Bitcoin hyper decentralization. Why I think there is an incredible opportunity and why uh, this person is... Uh, potentially finding a a way in to capitalize on this opportunity to actually figure out how to produce and how to spread this as quickly as possible to make bitcoin mining more decentralized than it has ever been trust me you don't want to miss this one stay tuned this show is brought to you by coinkite the makers of the cold card hardware wallet the way that you know you actually hold your coins that you actually own it seriously secure your bitcoin this is, this is the way that you can hold a real asset that is not an IOU, that does not have counterparty risk. Please treat it like that. Keep it safe. Put it on a cold card, store your seed phrase away, and then you can access, you can use it on your phone with Nunchuck like I do. It's, it's a, such an awesome setup, and it's not hard at all. And you can get 9% off with code BitcoinAudible. 
And then one of the things that you should do with that cold card is you should put that into your withdrawal address on Nodeless. And then you can accept Lightning and Bitcoin. You can set up a store. You can set up a paywall. You can set up a charity, a fundraiser, an entrepreneur project. You can plug in your, your WooCommerce, whatever the hell you want. You plug in your online life into it without having to run a node, without having to have they manage the front end. It's as simple as it can possibly be to just set it up, get it working, and then they will just forward the payments all directly to your cold storage, to your cold card. I'm telling you, this is there is BTC Pay Server for the technically literate and the people who want to deal with all of that. Then there is BTC Pay Simple, which is nodeless.io for those who just don't want the headache and they just want the Bitcoin to go straight to them. This is no KYC, no obligation, no subscription, nothing like that. You just go set it up. And that's why I offer anybody who wants to set up their donation page, just go over there, sign up with a few clicks, get a donation page and link uh, grab the link and put it on Noster or Twitter and tag me. I will send you 10,000 sats for free just for fun because I, I want people to check it out. I think it's a great service. Use my link right there in the show notes to do it. And don't forget your 9% discount on your cold card. With that, let's turn this over to Peter St. Ange in his article. And it's titled, Are We Living the Fall of Rome? by Peter St. Ange. The parallels are ominous. History says they can be reversed. I was on financial journalist Charles Payne's show recently talking about the progressive collapse of the once great city of New York. Charles brought up parallels with Edward Gibbon's classic book on the fall of Rome. What led to this was New York announcing it would cut police funding to spend $12 billion on an apparently endless flood of migrants, Migrants who have been pulled in by open borders and generous benefits, including being put up at luxury hotels at taxpayer expense, apparently forever. Zooming out, late Rome is almost a perfect fit for New York. What was once the greatest engine of prosperity in the world, of history-changing innovation, a global center of culture, has now become a crumbling parody of itself. A two-tier society with obscene wealth at the top, fueled largely by parasitic finance. Set against a rapidly growing lower class living in progressive misery and insecurity. All held up by a fading middle class who are fleeced to hold the whole thing together, paying obscene levels of taxes relative to what they earn, and obeying a dizzying series of laws and mandates that only hit them. The rich buy their way out, the poor ignore the laws. What unites them is everybody knows it's unsustainable, that it's all a Ponzi bought with $33 trillion of debt, almost $300,000 per household, and on its way to $50 trillion. None of these trillions will realistically be paid back, and sooner or later the suckers who buy the debt will make that bet. Gibbon's Fall of Rome Edward Gibbon was a well-known classicist writing around the time of the American Revolution. As a classicist, he knew the ancient theories of societal decline, including the most prominent, the Kyklos of Polybius, 200 to 118 BC. In that model, societies go through cycles of rise and decline. Polybius's formula is well known today in the good times make weak men meme, and it has held true for millennia. Working with this base, Gibbon wanted to understand exactly what those weak men did in order to destroy the greatest empire the world had ever seen. 
What were those? So what drove the decline for Gibbon? Today, historians focus on the symptoms of Rome's fall, the consequences, the moral decay, the economic decline, the fall in public safety, the multiplying plagues from dysfunctional public services, the hollowed-out military that ultimately invited barbarian invasions. But we know these well. In fact, we're living through many of them. What's a lot more interesting is the why, because that's how you stop it. And the answer, again directly from Gibbon, is threefold. End the causes. Specifically, the economic mismanagement, political corruption, and endless foreign wars. On economics, the key policies in the twilight of Rome were inflation through debasement of the currency. Alas, paper money hadn't yet been printed. Paired with confiscatory taxes that wiped out commerce and small industry while literally chasing landlords and tenants off the land, many displaced or bankrupt producers became casual laborers in the cities, subsisting on the rapidly growing public dole. Free bread back then, welfare and government benefits now, perhaps universal basic income tomorrow. Finally, predatory regulation, with multiplying rules bought by special interests that put remaining producers on borrowed time, running down their productive capital because the investment had already been made, but ceasing new investment so that one by one, Rome's economic base burned out like dying embers, leaving darkness. As prosperity faded, the government reacted, not by pulling back, but by expanding at breakneck speed. The bread and circuses multiplied to distract an angry populace. Civil unrest multiplied as classes fought over a rapidly shrinking pie. And above all, foreign wars were used to refocus the population on an external enemy, to drain the cities of military-age men and to reach for the occasional glory as Rome conquered yet another far-off people at Pyrrhic cost in blood and treasury. Taken together, the empire bankrupted itself, hollowed out its own economy, and used the government and war to squander what was left. What's next? The fall of Rome is a sobering lesson for us today, not only because the patterns are so obvious today, but because every fallen empire follows the same pattern. The Gupta of 6th century India, the Song Dynasty in China, the Spanish Empire, Victorian Britain. I believe there is still time. It's what gets me up in the morning to fight another day. Millions are waking up to what's happening and resolving to reverse it. And it's important to remember we have reversed it before. The Renaissance, the Victorian era itself, the Meiji Restoration have all reversed eras of decline led by men and women of resolve. We're still logging more losses than wins, but I believe the tide can be turned in time, that our predatory government can be leashed before it destroys us. What's happening right now is deeply concerning, but we have every chance to reverse it, and we all owe it to future generations, even to current generations, to never give up. All right, and then he has a link to his email list um, because he writes about these all the time and he has a weekly podcast. Uh, Peter has weekly podcast and um, also really great videos on Twitter, like just a little short, usually like seven to 10 minute breakdown of what the hell is going on or you know what's happened recently. I highly recommend it. I will have links to all of his stuff because um, I've been, I have, I'm a really big fan of his stuff. He does a great job of explaining things. This show is brought to you by the best freaking hardware wallet that you can get. 
and the only one that I get to use by just tapping my phone to it whenever I want to send a transaction. Well, that and the tap signer, but they're both made by CoinKite, so same difference. Cold card is like your hardcore, super cold storage, but still, I just love, I've been just in love with the mobile interface, and it's just awesome to be able to use what is what is basically my most secure hardware, right? like, like my super cold storage, but actually be able to access it on my mobile phone, like safely. It's really kind of crazy when you think about it. This is what these tools enable. It's funny looking back on it now, because I don't know how many years ago when I first got into Bitcoin, one of the crazy things to me was that I realized that we were going to have a massive economic incentive to rethink security that we had never had before. And to now have just a consumer device that is that has an insane level of security when it comes to the idea of securing and protecting a set of keys, of cryptographic keys that are your ownership to a piece of digital information. It's just kind of crazy that we have this available to us now. This is the norm. So not taking advantage of it is not only putting your Bitcoin at risk, but it's also failing to take advantage of one of the deepest levels of security that you'd ever, you've ever been able to get on a consumer device. And honestly, I just think we should all have a hardware wallet just because of how freaking amazing that is. And if you want to snag a cold card so that you can participate in this revolution, I highly encourage it. And I also suggest you get 9% off the price with code Bitcoin Audible. That is right. The name of this show, all one word, all caps, will get you 9% off your cold card at bitcoinaudible.com slash cold card, which all those details and the links you can find right in the show notes. Do it. All right. So, uh, like I said, I, I really, uh, I really like Peter St. Ange and a lot of the work he does. And I also thought this was funny that this like meme came out of nowhere. My, my wife asked me the other day, it's like, how long, how much, how often do you think about the Roman empire? And I was like, where did this come from? And so this meme is going around, uh, which I thought was funny, but it's great because it is actually kind of a perfect example of everything that we're going through. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, we're living through the fall of Rome. And the interesting thing about this idea, I think it's really crazy to realize when you when you take an honest view of history and you kind of like take all the politics out of it and stop trying to you know, dump an ideology on history and just kind of look at what happened with every great empire. That essentially debt has been what ha- what takes down every empire. And there's a reason, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson and like so many of the forefathers talk about like debts are the greatest enemy. Like they're worse than a standing army. Napoleon, I don't care who makes the laws if, as long as I can control who makes the money. Like everyone, like so many powerful people in history, despite the fact that this lesson is not taught in public schools for very good reason, because it's at odds with what public, the the public schools would like, or the government would like the public to think about what the government is able to do with money. You know, the, the, the fact that we don't realize that there are critical incentives and conflicts of interest with the government teaching the population what to think, of course, of course, an institution is always going to teach people if it has a monopoly on the ability to teach people or on the price and capital allocated to teaching people, they're going to teach people things that are beneficial to the institution. Like, no, Walmart would never, if Walmart was running all of the schools, you would never be taught about all of the horrible, embarrassing things about Walmart's history. You would never be taught about all of the thing, all of the ways 
that Walmart makes Walmart makes crappy products or cuts corners or doesn't have doesn't actually serve their customers. You would be taught about how great Walmart is and anything that was deeply in the interest of Walmart that it was important for people if people did not know or did not understand that thing Walmart would not teach them that thing the idea that somehow this is different for government that like people are different in some you name the institution something different and you force people to participate in it that somehow these incentives go away no not only are do they not go away they actually get deeper they get more profound the more entrenched this institution is and it's embedded in all of us it's how we think about everything there's a little gatekeeper and there's a little tyrant in every single person who is listening to this right now there is one in me if we do not keep that little tyrant in check they will dominate the way we think and the way we do things. Everyone is a victim to this. The idea that there's a multi-trillion dollar organization that doesn't earn any of the money that it gets, that it just steals it from other people, doesn't have its own goals or conflicts of interest, its own incentives to do something that benefits it is absurd. So it's no coincidence that we're not taught about this, that history just kind of leaves this important part of it out. But it's funny because all we have to do to understand why this is the case, why debts destroy a society, is just by grasping the most elementary truth of what savings and debt are. Like, what is it? What does it mean? The outcome or the consequences are extremely easy to derive. So the I've been doing these little guys takes videos. I've only done two of them so far on YouTube and Rumble and Twitter. Um, I've been trying to break down some of these big concepts to kind of a simplest form to an analogy to just kind of understand at the base layer what the hell is actually happening. And one thing I talked about uh, in the last one was natural price deflation about hoarding money. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of it just goes in one in ear and out the other for practically anyone who's arguing against me. But one of the most fundamental elements of that argument, the things to understand is that natural price deflation is the result, not the cause. So when they're saying that, oh, natural price deflation is going to stop growth, it's going to, it's going to halt the growth, everybody's going to hoard money, it, like, they completely fail to realize that natural price deflation doesn't occur without growth. So if it stops growth, it just stops happening, which means that there's a built-in feedback mechanism. It's not even a built-in feedback mechanism. It's just a built-in fundamental reality of the fact that the deflation is a consequence. It's just a measure of the fact that growth has already happened. When, specifically when we're talking about natural price deflation from a growing economy and a sound money. So the analogy that I used that is just, just whoosh right over the head of everybody who just like, oh, but deflation for hoarding, blah, blah. Like even after listening to the freaking uh, video is that the actual price deflation, the natural deflation is actually like a thermometer to the temperature. It doesn't control the temperature. You can't push the thermometer gauge up to make it hotter outside. And if you do manipulate the gauge, which the politicians do all the time, and then they go make, make this big report and they show like, this is what the temperature actually is. Look how great the temperature is and look how wonderful of a job we have done. Then let's give ourselves a big political pat on the back. And they broadcast it on the news and they all stand up on their podiums and they show their little chart. And they say, There's the, the, the Biden temperatures are so great. Everything's wonderful. And everybody's sitting at home watching on their TV, completely bundled up in like thick two foot thick jackets because it's absolutely freezing and there's a little bit of snow inside and everybody's just like, oh, it's 70 degrees. Look, look at their report. Clearly everything's great. 
Thank God the weather is nice, because things are hard enough as it is since it's so damn cold out here. So happy to hear that the politicians have let us know that it's actually warm. It's the reaction. The natural price deflation is the consequence of growth. And all politicians do when they manipulate those numbers is they're just screwing with the thermometer to give the appearance of a result that the economy isn't actually producing. Just like screwing with the thermometer doesn't change the temperature, it's just making it appear they're just trying to get the results. They're just trying to get the scoreboard. They're just trying to get the trophy without doing any of the work. Well, there's actually as deep and as simple of a fundamental connection between savings and debt and the growth and destruction of society. And all we have to do is understand what savings and debt are on an absolutely most basic level. Because the reality is as simple as I've just described. Savings is when you produce more resources than you destroy. Debt is when you destroy more resources than you produce. Savings is a recognition that you have created some amount of stuff and that you have not consumed or destroyed or used up as much as you made. Debt is exactly the opposite. That you have consumed, you have destroyed, you have used up more than you actually made. And understand, we don't have anything unless we make it. We don't have any resources unless we go get them. We have to produce in order to consume. You can't eat the sandwich before you get the ingredients and make the sandwich. So if it's not completely obvious, we can just equate the consumption of resources as their destruction, their loss, the using up of a thing. If we consume a sandwich, nobody else is going to eat it. We have destroyed the sandwich. We have literally turned the sandwich into shit. Nobody else is going to eat it now. We're done. The sandwich has been used up. It has been properly destroyed. All savings and debts are, are the accounting of how much has either been net created or destroyed in society. So when someone says that the debt doesn't matter, they could not be more fundamentally and completely wrong about that reality. They could not be more disconnected from what the meaning of the word actually is. To take on a billion dollars of debt is to use up, to have the right to consume, to take a billion dollars worth of things that we have made, resources, sandwiches, houses, out of the economy, to destroy them, to use them up, to degrade them, to have them, dis- to have them depleted. And then replacing all of those critical resources with a, peop- with a piece of paper that says, I'll put something back here later. So imagine you loan somebody your car and they replace it with a little sign, like maybe one of those little political signs that people, annoying shits that people stick everywhere. And that sign has a little drawing of a car on it and says, this is worth a car. There's a, there's a car here. We're going to put it back later. And then it's just sitting in your driveway. You can't drive anywhere in that sign. What you have is the apparent value of a car, but you don't have a car. The value of a car isn't the fact that it's quote-unquote representative of a car. It's the fact that you can get in it and you can go places at a vastly faster rate than you can by walking. The debt, the little sign, is just the record of the fact that in order to get back to the wealth we used to have, one must replace the car 
We need to produce another car and put it back in its place. Otherwise, the sign is meaningless. We've just lost a car. And I tell you, you should be scared shitless if the person who took your car starts arguing that the debt doesn't really matter. Because then what really happened is that someone just stole your car by defrauding you, and they're making it clear that they never had any intention of giving it back. You just got screwed. Now you are holding the bag because you're holding a car IOU instead of the actual car. And that person is admitting that they do not give a shit whether or not you get your car back. Yes, the debt matters because debt axiomatically is just the record of the destruction of society. It's literally just a tally on all of the shit that we have used up and never replaced. So the fact that the degradation of society coincides with astronomical debts isn't just like a coincidence or like even a cause and effect. It's just the measure by which we understand exactly how much societal destruction has occurred. They are just one in the same thing. The debt is representative of the degradation of our capital, of our wealth, of all of the things that we would actually like to have that we have now destroyed. The problem is, when you treat it like a debt, when you treat it like a liability and you think that someone else actually holds that value, is that the people think that they're still wealthy because they have a sign that everyone unfortunately thinks is worth an entire car. And so for a long, pretty long span of time before people catch on to what's actually happening and realizing that the resources aren't actually there, people trade the sign around for the full price of a car. So it ends up like a game of hot potato. You want to get the value. You want to figure out how to undo that sign, to, to dump that sign onto somebody else so that you can get whatever cars there are left so that you aren't the one holding the bag. So for some time, that sign's actually worth a whole car. But when you go into debt, you know, X amount this year, then even more the next year, you destroy even more resources, consume even more the next year, and then even more the next year, and then the next year, and the next, and the next, and this gets perpetually and exponentially worse for 50 years straight. And the only reason anyone has a car is because we've actually been able to ship our little signs that say this is worth a car overseas. And so China can make our cars for us. Germany can build our cars for us and then send it here. And they can be the ones left holding the bag. Well, that Ponzi scheme can keep working for quite a while before people realize none of that stuff's coming back. None of those gaps are getting filled in. I mean, Jesus, the people who are issuing the little IOU signs are now literally saying, oh, we owe it to ourselves. Oh, the debt doesn't matter. And now the debts are so unbelievably astronomical that people are hand-waving away trillions of dollars a quarter. Well, it just comes to a point where the signs aren't worth anything anymore. That people just realize that none of this stuff is ever getting replaced. Nobody even comes close to having the capacity to pay off all to replace all of the resources and capital goods that we have destroyed, that we have consumed and used up, made by other people. So if you want to know if we're living through the fall of Rome, just listen to the people in charge and think about what it means when they say things like that, that the debt doesn't matter. And then look at the mountain of it. 
Look at the astronomical size, the trillions upon trillions of dollars of our debts, and realize the, the fundamental, simple, utter truth that this is the record of the things that we have destroyed that we say we're going to pay back. And if we can't pay it back, the value of all of the things that we think have a value are all mispriced. Everything is wrong. All the houses are inflated. The education is inflated. The cars, everything that we think we actually have value in our retirements aren't worth shit because they're built on a towering skyscraper of just I owe you a car signs. It's just a vast structure built out of little bullshit promises of somebody's going to fill in the gap here. Somebody's going to produce these things that we used up. So when Peter talks about in this article that the middle class are getting fleeced because they're the only ones paying for all of this stuff, and he's 100% right, this is why the entire middle class is getting gutted because they're running out of resources to pay for all of the destruction. And fewer and fewer foreign people are accepting our destruction of resources. Fewer and fewer are buying our debt. And so that cost is having to shift back home, back to the middle class. Remember that you have to have, you must first have the resources in order to destroy and consume them. You can't travel in the reverse direction. So this is one of those things, this, this is actually another one of those like kind of second order effects and how sinister this idea of inflation encourages investment and forcing everyone to put their savings into the stock market, into the financial system. That This is such a giant scam so that everyone, so that as much wealth as possible can go into the stock market, in the financial system, into indexes, into BlackRock's coffers. Because that's the only way, if they put all of our retirements and our savings and our chances of actually having any leisure time when we finally get to the end of our lives, and we can actually sustainably live for some portion of our life, by forcing us to put it all into the financial markets, what they are able to do is steal that wealth use it all up, gamble it away, buy their private jets and their mansions with it, and in their place, just stick it IOUs. Just, just put in a bunch of the signs. And so we still think, because we gave it over to them, and then they used it up, they still put, we, all, we ever, all, we, all we ever had was a sign, right? We gave them our wealth, and they, they put a little sign in our account that says, we owe you this much, this is worth this much. And the fact that they don't actually have any of it because they already used it up and they leveraged themselves 40 to 1 and gambled it all away and then paid themselves staggering bonuses for their failure, we still just go check in our account and, oh, yeah, everything's good. People simply don't realize that they've been completely robbed, that all of their wealth has been taken. And roping us into their scam, into their, their financial scheme to confiscate all the wealth so that they can utilize it was all just a trick to get us to put our, put our wealth in harm's way, or really just to give it to them. I mean, they are the harm. So everyone's still just holding on to these signs that says, this is a car. And they think, unfortunately, that when they want to finally retire and take their free time to finally, to finally have their lives to themselves because they've worked their ass off for 70 years, that they want to take their car and they want to drive around, they want to see the world, they want to do something. They want to finally actually use the cars that they built, that they contributed into society. But they don't. They're not going to. Because it's already used up. 
It's not there anymore. It's already used up. It's already rusted through. It was long ago thrown in the junkyard. It's just a pile of rusty garbage, which we're now taxed yet again to pay for the trash. We're all slowly finding out that we can't go sit on our little yard signs like a magic carpet and zip around the world. That it's all just a lie. So you want to know why prices have skyrocketed? Why we have to send interest rates to the moon to prevent an implosion of the very value of our currency? Why everything is getting worse and there seems to be no way out? Just look at the debt. Look at the debt. We are paying for that. Right now. That is what is happening. That's why it feels like the world is falling apart. Like we're going through the fall of Rome and nobody can seem to get ahead. Because we are paying for the 50 years of irresponsible, corrupt bullshit that the government has promised that no one could ever afford. And they're making damn sure that they suck every ounce of work, of value, of retirement, of our living standards to fill in the gap for their fraud. The only way out is to get rid of your IOUs in exchange for some sort of asset that they can't control. This is the entire reason that we Bitcoin. Because it's not an IOU. Nobody has to owe me anything. There's no counterparty risk. I own my Bitcoin. My shit is on my cold card. I hold the keys and nobody can contest that. Nobody can print that. No one can dilute the share of what I have contributed. So get yourself some Bitcoin. Accept Bitcoin on your online store through Nodeless. It, you can't, it doesn't get any easier. Put it on your cold card. Protect your keys. And I guess get some popcorn and watch the fireworks. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. You know how they say that, you know, decades and decades, it was like, oh, you're just forcing the next generation to pay for this. We're just making our kids pay for all this stuff. Well, we're the next generation. We're paying for it. It is what it is. But I agree with Peter. We can fix it. Best thing we can do is get out from under it. Exit. And then we get the opportunity to hold their feet to the fire. To force them to have even the slightest amount of responsibility, the slightest amount of respect for what we earned and our most basic rights, and even just a infinitesimal amount of restraint for their little wannabe pathetic tyrants in their minds that are always running the show. Do not ask for your liberty. Do not ask to protect your wealth. Do it. You are free. They are tyrants. Act accordingly. Trust me, the outcome is not going to be better because you tied yourself to a $33 trillion sinking Titanic. You might think things are softer or more comfortable in the short term, but you will have nothing in the long term. But luckily, all you have to do is walk out. All you have to do is take the exit door. It's the one, it's the bright orange one. It's really easy to see. So, with that, thank you guys so much for listening. I am Guy Swan. A huge thank to Peter. Thank you to Peter St. Ange for this article and the, uh, honestly, the incredible content that he's always producing. Big fan. And uh, check out the stuff, his newsletter and those sorts of things. I got links and all the goodies in the show notes. And check out our amazing sponsors. And I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. Until then, everybody, take it easy, guys.
I sincerely believe that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies, and that the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling futurity on a large scale. Thomas Jefferson